Hey guys, it's just gonna be me today. Since we just came off of our Sorkin episode, I thought it would be a good time to talk about Moneyball, since it was co-written by Sorkin. Moneyball is a 2011 movie directed by Bennett Miller about the 2002 Oakland Athletics, who after losing some key players, utilized sabermetrics, a system that favors players who don't seem valuable at first glance, but are so statistically. The movie was in development hell for a while, one time being in David Frankel's hands and Steven Soderbergh's, but ended up with Bennett Miller, who was known at the time for 2005's Capote. The script bounced from Stan Shervin to Steven Zayan, and finally landed with Aaron Sorkin. The signature Sorkin wit is still intact, but not indulgent, because I think he kept a lot of what was already written. The characters all have distinct voices, but they don't start to sound like a bunch of well-educated people arguing with one another all the time. They feel like people in the world of baseball. The movie adheres to a three-act structure, and as much as I like to see experimentation with structure, when three acts work, it works. The movie is also boosted from terrific performances from Brad Pitt's desperate but enthusiastic Billy Bean, the Oakland A's general manager, to Jonah Hill's studious and quiet Peter Brand. Philip Seymour Hoffman also makes an impression as Art Howe, the A's coach who's reluctant to implement the roster changes Billy wants. And baby-faced Chris Pratt also stands out as a player whose career is saved by Billy. Now, I like this movie for a myriad of reasons. One of them is that I don't care a lot about baseball in real life and this movie makes me care. The characters are so likable and so believable in their goals that it's relatable and not distancing. They could be doing any job, it just so happens to be baseball. The script is also not overwrought with baseball jargon, making it accessible and still complex. A lot of that complexity comes from the characters' dynamics because even though everyone wants to win, they disagree about how to win. Billy and Peter want to implement groundbreaking, revolutionary ideas, and that puts them at odds with Art and the team's scouts, who believe in choosing players by more traditional methods, like how attractive their girlfriends are. Meanwhile, the undervalued and unwanted players are just happy to be playing. Billy's livelihood and worth are on the line, and he stands to disappoint an entire city if he fails. So he has nothing to lose. One of my favorite scenes comes when Billy starts cutting players, good ones, so Art will have no choice but to play who Billy wants, and Hoffman plays that moment of shock and disappointment so well. If you're worried that a majority of the movie is arguing about the best way to build a baseball team, don't worry, it's not. It really hits its stride when the team starts to have success from Billy and Peter's new system, and then everyone starts to fully embrace it. It's really touching and makes the team's success all the more satisfying. On a technical level, the movie feels both intimate and epic. There's a scene where Peter is evaluating a player's stats, and the scene is underscored with the mighty Rio Grande by This Will Destroy You, a song that has since been used in Room with Brie Larson and my theater company's production of Alabaster. My point being that Moneyball did it first, and in my opinion the best, and will always be the first thing I think about when I hear the song. The song, which starts quiet and builds to huge instrumentation, is used throughout Moneyball perfectly. Alternatively, the movie also knows when to abstain from music and let the characters talk or focus on their emotions. It allows you to feel without holding your hand to the desired result. 
One such moment comes when Billy visits the owner of the Red Sox in regards to a job offer, and it's just them talking. There isn't music to indicate thinking or contemplation, it's just a really engaging conversation. As for cinematography, director of photography Wally Pfister, who shot the Nolan Batman trilogy, makes excellent use of shadow and space, alternating between claustrophobic rooms and massive spaces. Billy is framed alone in his house often, or alone in the empty Coliseum. Most importantly, you feel like the games are actually being played. It doesn't feel like some weird green screen trickery. They captured the feeling of a baseball game. I'll be remiss if I don't mention Billy's daughter on Kevin's behalf, who acts as Billy's main source of support. The scenes with the both of them where she is concerned about her dad a lot of the time are really touching and not overly schmaltzy. I will have to disagree with Kevin about this being a daddy-daughter movie. It's not, dude. Moneyball stays true for the most part to the story of the Oakland A's, while being entertaining and not alienating to someone who isn't a big baseball fan. The writing is believable and funny, and makes the movie all the more entertaining. If you remember, in our first episode, I told the story of when we saw it in theaters with a group of friends, and the theater was packed with people our age. I was concerned that they would be disrespectful and make it hard to enjoy the movie, but they were really engaged. They laughed at all the right moments, and they loved it. They even clapped at the end. It was one of my favorite theater experiences, which is fitting, since Moneyball is one of my favorite movies. Go A's. And now for something completely different. So what did I see this week? Well, I saw this movie called Den of Thieves that came out in 2018. It's a heist movie that stars Gerard Butler, O'Shea Jackson Jr., that's Ice Cube's son, Pablo Schreiber of Porn Stash fame from Orange is the New Black, 50 Cent, and a bunch of other people. And I was not excited for this movie at all. In fact, I didn't want to watch it. And then my brother and dad started watching it. And the movie opens with this long, probably two minute long aerial tracking shot of this armored truck going down Los Angeles freeway. And it's gorgeous. And I was mad because I was thinking to myself, God damn it, this movie has some competence behind it. And it continued to have competence behind it which I wasn't really expecting. I wasn't expecting much competence in this movie. A, it stars Gerard Butler, whose recent films like the Olympus Has Fallen trilogy, Geostorm, and Hunter Killer don't leave a lot to be impressed from. When I think movies that have better lives at Redbox, those are kind of what I think of. B, it looked like just another trashy heist movie coming out in January, which is never a good sign. And C, the director's only other credits are as a screenwriter for London Has Fallen and for A, a Man Apart, a Vin Diesel movie that came out in early 2000s. Not really a recipe for something that I think will be good, but boy was I wrong. Now, I want to be clear, this is arguably not a good movie. The characters aren't likable. Gerard Butler... I think is supposed to be the cop that you empathize with, and he is such a bad guy. He cheats on his wife, he and his crew kidnap suspects and assault them, they have sex with strippers all the time, they're just, they're not good people, and I think the movie is trying to make you empathize with them, and it's not possible. And Pablo Schreiber's crew, the robbers, aren't great people either. They kill some innocent cops in the first scene, literally the first scene. And I guess they're likable and you want them to succeed. I, I, I really don't know. 
everyone's a bad person in this movie. The only person who's really likable is O'Shea Jackson Jr.'s character, the getaway driver for Pablo Schreiber's crew, and he's not really clearly defined either. He's only likable by virtue of not being as bad as everyone else. So the movie ends up being unintentionally hilarious because you got two groups of people that you don't like or care about that much because they're bad, and yet you're still following them. I thought it was fucking hilarious. <laughs> There's also a handful of plot conveniences, like a, a handy EMP that they pull out of their pockets to shut down the power of the place they're robbing. There's security protocols for a high-end bank that don't make sense. Why would the employees of the bank be allowed to have a food delivery guy come into the premises of the building? It's so funny. And it's all bolstered by the fact that the movie is really well shot and acted. Gerard Butler's not a great guy, but you know, he's selling the character. The cinematography and action are both really good. There's a fantastic shootout on a freeway that's tense and believable. And then the movie ends with the funniest twist I have seen recently. I don't want to give it away, but let's just say a character gets away and is living his life as a British man, and it's so funny. Yeah, Den of Thieves. I feel like it's a parody somehow. I don't feel like it's possible for characters to be this despicable and unlikable and have them try to be sold as the characters that you're rooting for. It's amazing. Maybe maybe it's a meta commentary about police action films or something. I don't know. It's amazing. You should watch it. It's two hours and 20 minutes long, which I don't want to say that it should be that long, but I enjoyed most of what was going on, unless it was Gerard Butler being a dick to his wife. Highly recommend. And I believe that there's talks of a sequel coming out, and I'm probably going to see it. The director, Christian Gudegast, I'm your biggest fan. You're amazing. Keep making Den of Thieves for the rest of your life. I will see them. That about wraps it up. Thank you for listening. And this has been another solo sode of Super Serious Movie Men. And I am Daniel, the most serious-tist movie man.